it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 164. Tonight, we have a special guest. Uh, We have Vitaly Katzenelson with us. He is the founder and blog writer of one of my favorite blogs, uh, The Contrarian Edge. And he writes some fantastic stuff. He's also an investor, a very smart investor. And we're going to go and chat with him. We had him on a while back and he's uh, graced us with his presence again. So we're really appreciate taking the time to come talk to us again. So thank you, Vitaly, and uh, welcome back to the show. Well, guys, thank you very much, Andrew and Dave. Congratulations on 163 podcasts. That's a lot of podcasts. So. Yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, we're we're, we're we're getting up there in age now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully a tiny bit wiser. So, Vitaly, last time we had you on the show, you know, since then we've obviously had the coronavirus and a lot of change through that. Recently, we've had a devaluation of the dollar. Uh, very recently, actually, in the past month or so, I guess a lot of things to talk about. What what how have you pers- how have you been dealing with the past let's say 6 months compared to where we were about a year ago when we talked to you yeah no um uh for a very very long time i was a i was a not a big uh, believer in kind of owning gold and for like they're very a lot of good reasons for that because it's kind of unproductive asset that sits there in the vault or safe and shines and doesn't really do anything. But like as 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 I look at the United States, I can see how United States has been basically given this privilege of having a reserve currency. And we earned that privilege because you know we are a country surrounded by two oceans, you know, we have a kind of a very polite neighbor in the north and a kind of a fun neighbor in the south. And um, you know, it's a large, yeah, it's the largest democracy, at least by GDP in the world. We have a very strong economy. We have a you know very stable political system. And um, you know, in addition to that, we have a lot of natural resources, which kind of you know allows us to be kind of self-sustained for, for the most part. So it's a very you know, so there are a lot of geographical and political advantages that gave us this privilege of having, you know, a reserve currency. Um, but at the same time, if you look at what happened to our economy over the last 20 years, in, 19, in, in 2000, our debt to, to GDP was 30%. In 2008, it got to 60. Before, COVID, uh, before like, you know, end of last year, we, we crossed 100. And just realized that at the, at the, end, you know, the end of last year, in 2019, you, you, you use debt to GDP was 86%. So for a long time, we looked at Europe and basically said, well, the socialists, you know, 
you know, they you know, they borrow too much money, they're spending the money they don't have. And uh, and then last year we had more debt per GDP than Europe. Then if you look at our debt GDP today, this year we're most likely gonna exit with 120 to 130% debt to GDP. Our spending as a percent of the economy on COVID, you know, kind of on trying to keep economy afloat, is basically two times more than any like than uh, EU or or like a big countries in EU. I think it's a three times more than three or four times more than Japan and other countries. So we are basically so the we are. Like so, if I the reason I'm making this point is that if you look at the U.S. dollar, U.S. dollar probably going to continue to be the reserve currency just because there are no good contenders for that, you know, uh, with U.S. dollar. But at the same time, I can see how it's becoming less and less attractive currency overall. So. You know, so I feel like, you know, so there are two things we've done in our portfolio. First of all, we own more foreign stocks and foreign, in, basically in Europe. That would, you know, that would benefit in the US dollar terms if dollar gets weaker. And second of all, for the first time ever, we bought gold. You know, gold is just a position in the portfolio. We don't have a 30% position. It's a, it's a small position, but for the first time ever, we bought gold. So in uh, gold also is a play that, not just the dollar gets debased, but all currency gets de- you know, debased. So, the, in other words, the dollar, you know, the even if the dollar does not decline against euro uh, or other currencies, it just the gold prices would go up in absolute terms because you know, the, because there's a kind of race to the bottom for all currencies, more or less. Yeah, I mean, uh, all the currencies are staying relative to each other, and if they're all generally devaluing. It could, in theory, go on forever. Whereas gold, there's only a certain amount of gold, yeah, on the planet. So you know, a commodity like gold could store value. Other commodities could also fall into that bucket as well. Sure. And maybe it's something we look into more than, let's say, five or ten years ago. Yeah, and I think the, you know, I think that's a very good distinction. So the, what makes gold slightly more special than other commodities is that. For the most part, it's not used for industrial uses, right? So let me just give you an example. Um, oil, like in like in theory, oil should benefit from weaker dollar in general. The gold price should go up. But there is also another dynamic there, which is supply and demand, right? And supply, you know, in a, you know, in a, you, I can I can definitely see scenarios where where the demand declines and supply stays the same. Etc. Do you see what I mean? Gold doesn't have that. They say gold is basically it's a you know people just look at it as store value, and that's why when they sell you know when they get out of US dollar or euros, they buy you know they just you know they they just park their money there. That's you know that's that's the distinction between gold and industrial commodities. So like I'll give an example. So if say China Chinese economy goes through severe correction. Demand for iron ore will decline. You know, just as an example, right? So, even though iron ore, in, in theory, should benefit from debasement of currencies, there would be other factors that could influence its price substantially. It's more of a pure play. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. I think for somebody like you to take, a, you know, a small hedging position in gold, to me, it's it's um, significant. Maybe people who aren't aware of you uh, and your philosophy are, aren't aware of like how big of a move that is. So, you know, is there a point where, let's say, spending versus GDP gets to an even higher level? Is that at a point where you look at going from a position, a small position that is at now, to possibly going to a bigger position in gold? Or is it something you're just constantly evaluating? How do you look at that moving forward? You know what? I'm not there yet. I mean, this is <laughs> for us. It was such a big decision to begin with philosophically. Like I'm, I, 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 I don't know. I, you know, honestly, I just really don't know yet. But we have been, like, you know, we have been, like, if I look at the world today, it is a lot less stable now than it has been over the last. 20 or 30 years, 
like, you know, since the Cold War list, last 30 years, right? And so another group of companies we've been buying, defense, you know, kind of defense companies, you know, and uh, just because I feel, you know, the, you know, the, there are some opportunities where we can basically feel the asymmetric risk. Uh, they're asymmetrically priced. In other words, if things continue, if in the worst case scenario, we're going to make some money and not going to lose money because the way they're priced, in the, there is high probability that, uh, especially European defense stocks, as the United States creates this vacuum in the world, the uh, you know the European company is going to have you know, European country is going to have to be spending more and more money on defense, which would actually benefit these companies. So, you know that creates a tailwind you know for them. And in the another tail of that, if there is a some kind of armed conflict, you know, of, of substance, and I really ho- and this is not wishful thinking on my part. Trust me, I I really hope it doesn't come to that. But in that case. Uh, this companies become a hedge in our portfolio against that. So, and just just to make your, you know, just to clear, clarify this point, I am not a macro investor at all. But, you know, I think, you know, this is a time where you have to have a, can, you know, kind of, you can't really bury your head in the sand and kind of assume everything will be, you know, that, you know, that everything will be stable forever. And I think so. The, I'm not a micro investor at all. So, but we are starting to make changes in our portfolio just for these risks that now kind of we can see rising, you know, more and more day after day. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been doing something similar pretty much ever since COVID hit. Uh, you know, you don't, like you said, want to make the macro completely guide your decision making. It, it's it's about the companies and the businesses and the cash flows and the dividends and all of those things, but it's, it seems like, and, and this, you know, I, I'm asking maybe from a selfish perspective, cause I'm mm-hmm. curious to, to how you're looking at it now. Um, it seems to me like there's a lot of events going on. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the EU needing to build up an army. I know the U S mm-hmm. just pulled out some troops from Germany as an example. Mm-hmm. You have China doing all their things to piss off pretty much everybody, not just the United States. And so as it comes to, do you find yourself spending a larger proportion of time following news that you think would be relevant to your investments than you did in the past versus like a balance of, you know, reading annual reports and, and how, how are you thinking about that these days? Yeah. So they, this, this virus was a wake up call for me. And uh, let me tell you from which perspective. I... I remember like early January, maybe sometime in January, I forget what it was. I was kind of paying a close, close attention to what's going on in China with the virus. And I remember thinking, well, this is China problem. I mean, I need to figure out how it's going to impact us. But this is, you know, this is a China problem because these things don't happen in the United States. Like this is, you know, and that is a, such an arrogant way of thinking. You know, and by the way, this is me, me thinking this. And then I realized, like now that I look at this thought and I realize this, that is a very arrogant, right? And that arrogance, you know, had a plenty of, you know, kind of fruitful ground for that because, like, guess what? Like, bad things haven't happened here for a long, long time, right? They happened some other places, but not in the United States. And now I realize that, and so, now I realize, well, I need to kind of not to be involved in a, a wishful thinking, like well, I don't want bad things to happen in the United States. I need to be more open-minded and say, okay, well, I, well what bad things could happen now? So it's a kind of opened up my mind a little bit more than, I, you know, I guess I, I, in hindsight, I was more close-minded than I thought I was. And so, yes, I mean, and, you know, and if you... If you were a Martian, and this is, you know, I hope, I really don't want to get political and I won't, but if you're a Martian and you land and you kind of look about what's happening in the world today and you look at the United States behavior over the last, you know, three or four years, you can definitely see that we are, I think from geopolitical perspective, we are 
less um, we became more volatile from geopolitical perspective and less predictable and we are more entrenching we kind of you know kind of we are not trying to be the world leader anymore and we are entrenching and that means that and also if you think about it you know, what's also happening is that and that's kind of becoming evident you now self evident almost every day kind of the globalization is kind of coming to an end right now you know now countries are you know the global trade is you know it's, you know it's you know is probably shrinking now like the direction of it at least uh is going the other way and that is actually by definition almost to leads more global p- political instability because when you when you trade with somebody you're kind of you know joining the hip once you stop trading with that country or you start doing less and less of that it becomes us you know versus them a lot more and that means just the world is becoming less you know less and less stable so that's kind of so to answer your question yes i've been thinking a lot more about geopolitics over the last months you know and so and uh yes I, I, yeah dave what about you um I know I've I think the past month or two on the podcast I've probably talked about geopolitics a little more than I have in the whole history of the podcast combined how do you how are you yeah, feeling sure. about this I know we try to try to avoid it as much as we can right Yeah we we do and but I think it's just natural with all the things that Vitaly was pointing out, it's, I think it's completely natural to, to focus on more of this before. And I think what Vitaly was saying was right on the mark. And as the supply chains were disrupted early on with what was happening in China, I think that really kind of opened my eyes like, wow, we really do depend on other countries far more than you really think we do. And how is that good or bad? And what are the impacts of that? And like Vitaly was saying, I think that's right on the mark as far as we trying to pull back from other countries, that's going to cause more frustration and anger from those other countries because they depend on our money as much as we depend on their products. And I think that that definitely leads to more instability. And I worry that we go back to the protectionism era of the 1930s and 40s before World War II, and that was, you know, America was very much an isolationist type country at that time before we got involved in World War II and everything that last happened after that. I wonder if that is a trend that we're going to, and not to get political, but I wonder if this upcoming election and elections after that, if that direction will change. And can I just I want to point something? So there's three of us on this call. And three of us dancing, you know, doing this very interesting dance because none of us want to touch politics. <laughs> no, but, but I think, yeah. But a, you know, because you know, because but I think I want you to think about something for a second. There is a very good reason for that, because the politics became so toxic in the United States. It's and you, mm-hmm. like the second you state your position about your politics, it's basically the, you know the person on the end stop listening. Yes, and because it became incredibly kind of in a in a primitive level tribal, like like in the you know, and that also tells you about kind of the, the like the the one thing is also that kind of worries me about the United States and also our everybody else outside the United States can see this too, is that the social fabric of our societies kind of. Kind of breaking, you know, it's breaking, you know, it's breaking as well, and so that's another reason why kind of we want to hedge against U.S. dollar, because remember the political stability, you know, is a, you know, I don't think we're going to stop being a democracy anytime soon, but but we'll become a little bit less of a democracy. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you can be a little bit less of a democracy. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I don't know if it falls in the same category as like being a, uh, a little bit pregnant kind of thing. Like, I don't know if you can become less of a democracy, but you know, we are like, 
like I would argue we are less the social fabric of society is a lot more strained today than it was I don't know how far back you want to go. Four years, eight years, twelve years, twenty years. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. Is my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's been. A, I think it's been an evolution, and I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I think the the strength of our com- our country for many many years was our ability to compromise and work through problems from both sides of the aisle. And I think there has over the last, you know, I would say maybe 10 years or so, there has been a shift towards extremism on both sides. And I'm not saying both are right or wrong. I just have noticed a lot more people are a lot stronger in their opinions and they're a lot stronger. And my opinion is the right way and anybody else is wrong. And that's the only way that we can go about doing it. And I think if you look at the history of our country, it has never performed best to that way. And even going back to the beginning of this whole episode with, with COVID, and you think about the political parties being able to come together at that time and get a relief package done as quickly as they did was kind of cool <laughs> because it was something we haven't seen in such a long time. And without play, you know, casting blame on either side, I just think that there has been such a division of, of views and thought points. And you can see it on, on your social media, uh, whoever you are, you can see the divisions and it's, it's so rampant. And I, I just think that for me personally, as we get 
farther down the road, I think figuring out a way that we can all work together is going to be the better way for our country to go. And that's for us personally, but just for every place in the world as well, because we lend, our country has lent some more stability to the world uh, over the last 40 or 50 years than we had experienced prior to that. So I, I just think that that's something to, I guess, consider. Well, anyway, and just, just you know, so none of us want to get, you know, want to go into politics. And, you know, the only point I'm trying to make is nope. this. That's the, all those things are like, you know, so we are hedging against U.S. dollar declining. And these are the reasons for that. Like all everything we talked about, that is why we're doing it. Because that is, you know, all of those things are not positive for the U.S. dollar. That's all. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right. So maybe, maybe we should pivot off of, of politics <laughs> and let's, let's talk about Uber. So, uh, you had a great, you had a great uh, series that you wrote about your thoughts about Uber. And I would love to hear some more ideas on, on, about that company. Well, so I just to the listeners, I just want to tell them, and I'm going to be a little self-promotional, but not for the you know for the right reasons. I'm so much smarter on paper than I'm in person. So if you if this conversation if this conversation uh, on Uber uh, picks your interest, I do have like a, this 13-page in-depth write-up on Uber that you can you know you can you can just download for free on my website just because. I go into that in so much depth, you know, but the, uh, but yeah, just, you know, to, just to sum it up, it's like probably the most, one of the most controversial stocks we ever own because we kind of, we are value investors, right? And we are buying this company that never made any money that I think lost $5 billion last year or something like that, that has a contentious relationship with its drivers, politicians hate it, everybody hates it. And at the same time, we think it's a great investment and you know, and I think the most importantly, people who use it love it, right? And you know, which to me is maybe yes. more important than that. politicians loving it. Um, but I think you know, so what? Um, I think Uber is misunderstood, and I and I and I and I say that because I kind of look at my think how my thinking about Uber evolved, and I think I used to be in the same camp as everybody else, like everything I just told you, like you know, this company is losing money, it's etc. 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 Like the, like if you look at um, and it's digital competitors. Let's say that you look at Facebook. When Facebook, you know, the faster Facebook was growing, the more money it was making. Like, and what I mean by this, it's not like if it's if it grew earnings, you know, revenues hundred percent, its earnings would go up five hundred percent or something like that. And the reason that happened because, like, technology companies have a substantial economies of scale, right? For Facebook to Let's say Facebook wants to go into France. For them to capture French, you know, French market, their costs, incremental costs are you know, de minimis because they just have to translate their website to French. That's it, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe install some data, you know, kind of buy more capacity of, you know, you know, you know, in, you know, data, you know, kind of uh, build a data service in France or something, um, which doesn't cost that much, costs millions of dollars, and they, then they have billions and billions of dollars of revenues. Now, Uber is kind of a hybrid company. Part of them is like a digital company like Facebook, which is basically a switchboard between a passenger and a driver, right? You like If you think about it, it when you take Uber, the cost to Uber of that, uh, to, you know, of, of that ride is de minimis, right? Because all they're doing is connecting you to the driver, okay? So it's a... But the problem is... There is a second part to Uber business, which is analog. And what I mean by this, this is more like a brick and mortar kind of more or less part of the business where in the past, when they were growing, they were like, um, they would go into new market. Let's say they go to Australia. They come to Australia at that point in time, like they have zero presence there. So, and it's a two sided marketplace. So, um, so for their uh, for uh, riders to you know, so what they had to do literally, they had to pay drivers for months and months to sit and do nothing, because then you know once they had a kind of driver sitting there, 
and waiting for the passengers to come, they had to go to passengers and say, by the way, you can take Uber now. And so you know, can, you, can you imagine how much it costed them to create the two-sided marketplace? You know, it was enormous cost. So, and then every time they would go to Newtown, etc., the taxi, you know, they had to fight against taxis because, you know, taxis were local monopolies and they didn't obviously did not want them to come. So they had a huge legal cost. In addition to that, they had to, uh, you know, spend a huge amount of money in R and D, build out new products, all the you know, create accounting systems, etc. All these different things. So it took them a while to get to scale on the unlock side of the business, and. And uh, my argument would be last year was the year when they got to scale on that side of the business. And if you just look at Uber rides business, not the other businesses, that business was actually cash flow positive. And if COVID did not happen, they you know the whole company would have been more or less cash flow positive by the end of the year. And then, and this is where the interesting part happens, the as the Uber, you know, I would argue that. Uber business, Uber rides business, you know, is still in the, in the infancy because it's not competing against taxis and rental cars. So it does, but that's not, you know, that's not the core market. The core market is a car ownership or taking rides. Actually, not even car ownership. It's um, you taking rides, which could be cars, which could be taxis, could be rental cars, but it also could mean that uh, you're taking subway or bus, so the market for them is absolutely enormous, and they have and they just and they're they do have a significant competitive advantage because they're the largest, and in this in this market being the largest actually gives you a huge competitive advantage, and therefore they are most likely to be the company to you know when the market matures, you know they would capture the largest. You know, portion of the market, and therefore the economics would accrue to them. And also, here's the key: once the analog business is at scale, the digital business basically starts is responsible for incremental profitability, and it's incredibly profitable. So the contribution mark for every dollar of incremental sales, fifty to sixty cents should drop to the bottom line. So therefore, when we were buying Uber, if you look backwards, it looked, you know, it looked insanely expensive because it lost money. But what we see, if you look three to five years out, we see a company could actually make at least three dollars of earnings per share. So so suddenly, you know, it didn't look as expensive to us when we were buying it. So can I chime so in I'll, here? I'll, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the accounting and stuff like that, but yeah. Am I correct in in assuming that essentially they had negative operating cash flows, but you're saying those were towards building the analog side and those expenses that were on the operating side are not going to be there in the future because they have the analog side built up? Yes. And that's, and actually, just, just to make it clear, that's part of the story. Because Uber is actually, when we just say Uber, we assume it's a one business, but there are multiple businesses inside of it. So the ride-share business, that's the by far the largest business and the most profitable business. But there is another business that say, suddenly became in, exploded over the last four months, which is uh, Uber Eats business, right? And that business is still losing a lot of money. So when we were analyzing Uber, we basically had to make an assumption that one of the two things will happen in the next five years. Either Uber Eats turns cash flow positive or they close it. Okay. Because it's not right. You know, if five years is plenty of time for them to figure out if this business, you know, has a reason to exist because unlike Uber, you know, like, so, <laughs> so unlike um, their, their core business, this business, the Uber Eats business is more difficult. And the reason it's difficult because in addition to having three parties involved, which is a passenger, a passenger, driver, and Uber, you also have a restaurant in the middle. And therefore, it's more difficult to make money because you have less dollars to divide you know, between all these four parties. So for that business to succeed, 
they basically get you know should be able you know they need they need to be able to batch orders. So when when the driver comes to Chipotle to pick up a order, he needs to pick up pick up, pick up uh, you know two orders, two or three orders, and drop them off to customers that are right next to each other. If you know, so otherwise the those breweries will be cold, and also the ticket size has to get larger. So if they get there, and unless you know, and that's an assumption. If you know, then this business will be worth a lot of you know, will be worth something. And if they don't, then they'll you know, they'll shut it down. And that's how we looked at that. You know, that's how we looked at that. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. So I guess a, a question along those lines then, and you're talking about looking at the different businesses. How, how do you how do you go about valuing something like that? And that's one of the things that I struggle with as a value investor is I you know, all the things you were talking about. I see the negative cash flows, I see the negative earnings, losing money, all those kinds of things. And I think, whoa, I'm not touching this with a 10-foot pole. So how do you step past that to look at a company like an Uber? Well, so first of all, I, I think um, I'll give you two, uh, two answers to that. Uh, number one, so when we were analyzing Uber, we had to understand, like we actually analyzed each business inside of it independently. Okay, so just looking at the income, like looking at the income statement overall, like you know, the, you know, combined company and cash flows is not very helpful. So you yep. really have to look at the economics of each business. That's point number one. And so once we understood economics of each business, we realized. That you know, you you understand, you start understanding the analog side and digital side of the Uber Eat or Uber the Uber Ride business, then it becomes easier to see that uh, you know they're now in you know entering this you know into into you know into the stage where the digital business now runs you know starts uh, becomes more important. Uh, that's point number one. Point number two, it's also important to understand how, like, if you, if you look at Google's and Facebook's of the world and un, kind of analyze them in the hindsight, like, you know, like you study these businesses and see what happened to them, it helps you, gives you some clarity to understand how these businesses evolve over time, how they have a fixed cost, right? And this fixed cost, you know, at the, at, over time, the uh, revenue growth, the cost starts growing at a, at a slower rate than revenues and the margins expand. And suddenly, 15% revenue growth translates to 30 or 50% earnings growth. So it's a, you know, I, you know right. so they, I would study the, you know, the, yeah, I would study the other companies, and, you know, and that's what we did. You know, we spent a lot of time looking at Priceline.com and other companies, you know, to see how they evolved. That makes sense. So I guess kind of along those lines then, what is what do you see as a potential, I guess, risk or I guess disruptor of your idea of Uber and the their move towards profitability is the the ride sharing not ride sharing, I'm sorry, the the evolution of driverless vehicles. You know, I know that that's probably a little bit out. Out, but is that something that is a is a concern for Uber and your thoughts on that part of what uh, could happen? All right, so I'll do another shameless self promotion, but again, it's not it's for the benefit of your listeners. <laughs> okay, I I, I wrote a thirty five. <laughs> yeah, when I get into this yeah. project, I really like go really go very deep. I literally wrote a thirty five page write up on Tesla. Um, and because I bought the car and I was so blown away by the car that, you know, I started, you know, you know I, I realized that's kind of the future and I started the whole industry and I wrote this 35 page write up again, go to contrarianedge.com. You can download it. It's free. Just there is, you know, I'm, I'm getting nothing out of that. Just, you know, the satisfaction that you know, your listeners read my, you know, 35 page write up or they can listen, by the way, they can listen to it on my podcast you know it's a it's all there so by the way both uber and tesla pieces are there but anyway the reason i'm bringing this up so when we were studying tesla like one of the big questions for me was what's what's the future of self-driving and what i realized that this self-driving is so much further away than people you know than elon musk would make you believe and the reason for that it's 
basically it's a lot more difficult. Well, it's it's a there, there are a couple of reasons. Number one, number one, uh, it has to be perfect. It has to be nearly flawless, and it has to be. And it's not that you know. It's not what the car does on a shiny day on the highway when you have clear dividers. It's what the it's it's what happens in this kind of unique circumstances where there is a cone suddenly lying, you know, kind of lying in the middle of the lane, or there was construction, or I saw a video, like literally just I saw a video of a guy walking along the highway with a stop sign carrying a stop sign behind him. Like, what do, you, what do you do, like, when that happens, right? So, right. It's, it's, you know, so, the, so that's number one. So you have to, you know, the, car, you know the, the cars have to be trained for all these, like, very rare events, okay? That's number one. Number two, we don't have a legal framework for that yet. Like, so what happens, who's responsible when a self-driving car, you know, uh, Tanya causes, you know, causes an accident, or is an accident. We don't have a legal framework for that. So the point I'm trying to make is that self-driving is probably good ten years away. Okay, it's going, you know, it's going to happen, but it's just what most likely what's going to happen is the we're going to have a, the, you know, the self-driving is going to be a small like assisted drive, assisted assisted driving. And let me give you this analogy for you. Um. Radiologists, right? They, they you know they read X-ray, and normal radiologists can probably read about hundred X, uh, hundred X-rays a day, you know, more or less. Now, computers, if you think about it, you know, especially if you especially you know, if you can, if you have a specialized area, computers can actually probably do as good of a job reading X-rays or better than humans can. But the problem is. Would you trust a consumer to read your X-ray? Well, that's a big issue, right? That's you know, that's you have a life and death situation. So we are very uncomfortable with that. But what's happening now is that for every hundred, by the way, for every hundred X-ray, X-rays, but maybe one or two percent, you know, maybe one or two is peer reviewed by somebody else, right? So maybe one or two X-rays today peer reviewed by another radiologist. Okay, so two things could happen, you know, there is that, you know, number one, computers can peer review 100% of x-rays, right? Because the incremental cost is very low. And therefore, when that happens, they can bring out, you know, they can say, they can bring back an x-ray to the radiologist and say, did you look at this area? Okay, also another thing that computers can do, they can, when the radiologist is reviewing an x-ray, they can point out a few areas other, you know, maybe he should spend some time looking at, which is basically like assisted driving almost, like, you know, coming back to self-driving, right? So today my car, my Tesla car helps me to, it helps me to drive. It doesn't drive for me, but it provides assisted driving. And I think this is, you know, this is what's most likely lies in the future for next probably at least 10 years. And that's why that is really not a risk for Uber for a long, long time. So this is a very long answer to your question. <laughs> but, you know, um, when you write a 37-page paper, it's very difficult to answer those questions in the short run. <laughs> well, I, I, the thing that I liked about the both of the write-ups was the the depth that you went into and and also the thing that I liked especially about the Tesla one was the discussion about moving away from uh, ice vehicles or internal combustion engines and mm-hmm. towards the electronic and I, I just I, I really enjoyed that analogy of the what happened to the horse and buggy makers when cars kind of became the thing. <laughs> and I just I thought that that was really a, a brilliant insight, and it really kind of made the evolution from you know a normal a quote air quote normal cars to electric cars uh, that much more I guess stark to me, and I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I guess one of the things about Tesla that we we talked about before was uh, mm-hmm. the aspect of their valuation now and what they're going to have to do to get to that. And you were talking about how they still have to bend metal. Uh, to make the cars and people focus so much on the fact that it's a technology company, but it's, I think it's really more than that. I think Uber probably falls into that category a little bit too, don't they? 
Maybe not. <laughs> maybe oh, no, yeah, maybe no, thinking no, that through no, a little bit. Maybe no, that's no, not, think, not no, a great think, analogy. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, kind of interesting. I think I say that's that's a good. You know, there is a reason actually. So there is a reason why, like, if you want Uber, right? Because Uber can literally grow its revenues tenfold, and their incremental investments in um, infrastructure are going to be minimal. Right, just because it's really right. kind of a software connecting by you know kind of two-sided network. It's like eBay, right? It's it's almost like eBay concerns you know con- connecting you know uh, buyers and sellers. It's kind of the same thing, right? You know, if you think about their core in you know kind of core businesses is growing, right? Um, with Tesla right. is this. Like I I I'm very proud of the analogy I used. Uh, I call it. Uh, Tesla's valuation basically assumes there is a temporal wormhole developed, you know. Because, <laughs> yes. so, yeah. <laughs> well, because, right, like in the Star Trek, I remember, like, I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Star Trek. I remember when, like, a starship can go from one galaxy to another. And if, the, if it wasn't for wormhole, it would take, I don't know, 100 light years or whatever. But, but because of wormhole, wormhole, it can get there in seconds, right? Well, right. Te- like Tesla today is, uh, I think, manufacturing roughly about half a million cars a year. And uh, like, if you look at Toyota, and this is not a perfect analogy, by the way, but if you look at Toyota, it's I think it's making it close to maybe eight to ten million cars a year. And Tesla has a larger market capitalization than Toyota by thirty percent. So right. the market is basically assuming that, that you know, like the, the future already has happened, right? You know, you know, and Tesla is manufacturing, you know, ten, like almost 10 million cars a year. Well, the problem is there are two things with that. So there is a time, and you know, there is a time element of that, right? It would take time to Tesla to get from half a million cars to, you know, 10 million cars, right? You know, but also, right. but also it takes a huge amount of capital. Um, so to get to the half a million cars a year production, Tesla spent, I forget, either 25 or 30 billion dollars in capital expenditures. Just imagine that, 25 to 30 billion dollars. So in other words, if you're saying... So this, just think about it, right? So if you're saying the production will go up 10 or 20-fold, just think of, you know, they would have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars. Okay, and that's yeah. real money. So, and that that capital is, you know, that costs money. There is a, you know, that that's, you know, they're going to have to build factories, bend metal, et cetera, all these different things, right? So right. that's a real cost. And basically the market is completely ignoring this. And let me make another kind of tangential point. That is actually also true. The temporal borehole is happening to like to a whole bunch of other companies you know, today that are, I'm not even talking about the things actually. I'm talking about the, like you have a lot of technology companies that are trading at, you know, 30, 40 times revenues. Like they're not mm-hmm. even trading on earnings anymore because they have no earnings, right? Like to me, right. like, uh, uh, Company that trades at five thousand times earnings or five million times earnings kind of falls in the same category. Like there is no difference between them. So this, this is why this company trades at, on revenues, 30, 40 times revenues. And you know, they're kind of kind of investors as kind of assuming that, you know, there's a temporal wormhole there as well. Like they just but the same thing happened in 1999, by the way. So uh we kind of seen this movie before with a lot of these companies and Tesla as well, you know. So I you know, I just took, you know, for the, we never had a position on Tesla until recently. We, we have a small position in put options in, you know, on Tesla, but that's, you know, it, and again, it's not, it just, it's really just, you know, because of the valuation. It doesn't mean that Tesla is not an important company. I absolutely love my Model 3, but uh, it just, you know, the stock got ahead of itself by, you know, by a lot. Yes. Yeah, the last the last three or four months of of all the craziness in the stock market is you've seen so many crazy things, uh, like Tesla, like uh, what's the truck company Nikola? Nikola, uh, yeah, that, yeah, which is a play in Nikola Tesla. So, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, I, it's too I bad he is should, a better known. I think you should tweet 
um, Elon Musk and tell him he's the temporal wormhole, I bet you he would retweet you. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he would like it actually, right? Because yeah, exactly. Very, very space sexy. Yeah, that's a, that's a good yeah. point. He would actually he would probably get a chuckle out of this because it is. And he would. And here's the interesting part: he probably would not disagree with me that much. Like, yeah. he, you know, I think no. he commented on the stock price, saying that's kind of, you know, it got itself ahead of itself. Yeah, that was funny too. Mm-hmm. Where for those two or three people out there that are not familiar with you, where where can we people go to find more of your work? Got it. So I'm I'm gonna give you two different locations: one for readers, and another one for listeners. How's that? So you can read my articles Perfect. and subscribe to my emails on the contrarianedge.com, edge.com, contrarianedge.com. However, those who'd like to strain their ears instead of their eyes. We have a kind of a lazy man's podcast, which is uh, basically my articles read to you by a professional, yeah, I guess, uh, artist. And uh, you can go to investor.fm, like an FM radio. If you go to investor.fm, you can just listen to, we only have, a, unlike, unlike you guys, we only have a 84, I think we have a 84 episodes. <laughs> so you guys are, you know, uh, much, you know, uh, further along than us. Uh, but you can listen to my articles basically in a just out of form. Yeah, they're they're awesome, and and I will say this: that uh, Vitaly's writing is some of the best out there. And if you have not checked out any of his stuff, you absolutely must. He is a fantastic thinker, as we just illustrated here in the last hour or so that we spoke. And I've learned so much from his writing, not only his Contrarian Edge uh, blog, but also the books that he's written as well. And the podcast is a nice little bonus treat because then I can read it first and then I can listen to it uh, later so it can help reinforce what I already read. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to have that stuff. And we, of course, appreciate Vitaly taking the time out of his busy day to come talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion today with Vitaly. Again, we want to thank him very much for taking his time out of his day to come talk to us. It was a, a pleasure to speak with him again and uh, great insights into everything from markets to Uber to Tesla and beyond. So thank you again, Vitaly, for your time and go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, y'all, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.